Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. You know, you can't turn on a TV news channel these days, at least a cable TV news channel, without seeing some TV pundit. And in fact, this morning I saw the TV host, Stephanie Rule, going off on this whole thing about how Democrats need to move to the middle. What the hell does that mean? I mean, do they mean the Democrats should say it's just fine that 30 million Americans have no health insurance? Do we love the big banks making, I think they just made $230 billion in profits, best year they ever had, while ripping us off and putting our economy at risk? Is that, is that what move to the middle means? The status quo? Oh, things are just fine the way they are. Let's just make little tiny tweaks. Is that what they're talking about? Does move to the middle mean that the fossil fuel and chemical industry should continue to poison us and our planet? I mean, is it just fine that the drug companies and for-profit colleges and charter schools are literally ripping us off to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, transferring that money out of the pockets of working people, the middle class, retired people, young people, and into the pockets of billionaire CEOs? Is it just fine that the American dream is dead? That for the first time, literally in the history of the United States, a generation is not going to do better than their parents? Is that what these people mean when they say, Democrats need to move to the middle? We don't need union jobs back? Is that what they say? Is that what they're talking about? Is Sherrod Brown's call for protectionist trade policies only doing it the right way through Congress instead of some stupid presidential proclamation and trying to negotiate with the president of China who's going to eat your lunch? Is that, is that too far out for these guys? I mean, what the hell is the setter beyond the status quo? And if it's the status quo, who wants it? The logic that I think I was getting from what I was seeing on television this morning, and I've been, uh, this was the first time I saw it, you know, from one of the hosts. Actually, not the first time. I've heard Chuck Todd say the same thing, uh, who's not, you know, identified politically, right? He's supposed to be a real reporter. And, of course, you hear it from, you know, people, uh, people who are former Republicans or current Republicans. They're all telling Democrats, move to the middle, move to the middle. 
And like I said this morning, the argument was, well, what about those people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump? Well, what was the signature call for action, essentially? What was the motto back in 2008 and then again in 2012? What was the motto of the Obama campaign? Change. Hope and change. Change is radical. Change is not status quo. Now, tragically, Barack Obama was stuck with a Republican-controlled House and Senate for most of his presidency. Um, you know, I, I get it that for the first two years, the Democrats held the House, but, uh, or excuse me, held the Senate, but there was, um, and, 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 they, and they actually, they did control the House for, for quite a bit of that time. But my point is that there were only 72 days there where they had a veto-proof Senate, and that's when they passed Obamacare. And, you know, about a dozen other pieces of really significant legislation. But when people voted for Obama, they weren't, that was, he was not the middle, in my opinion. They thought they were voting for a liberal. He was campaigning on, let's make universal health care. And that's what he tried to bring about with Obamacare. He was campaigning on, we're going to do something about these banksters. When he got in, he discovered, you know, essentially, I don't know if he couldn't do it or if he didn't think that he had the political capital or it wasn't, you know, in his in his, uh, you know, the fire in his belly or whatever, but, you know, he never did anything about the banks. Um, but it was about change. And I would say, I would, I would strongly argue, my pushback on this argument that I was hearing this morning on MSNBC, that I hear all the time, actually, frankly, across, you know, uh, political talk shows, and that the Republicans are really trying to push, because, in my opinion, because they know that if the Democratic candidate is same old, same old, if it's somebody from the new Democrat coalition, if it's a recycled Bill Clinton, basically, the Democrats will lose. Donald Trump will eat their lunch, our lunch, in my opinion. If we don't have somebody who has, who is either a solid, true progressive, which so far looks to me like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, or somebody who has embraced solid, true pro progressive positions, and, and, and done so in, in, in an intellectual framework, in an understanding of what social democracy is and democratic socialism is. They may not like using that word, that phrase, and I get that. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. If, you know, if, if that's going to increase your chances of winning, do what you got to do. But this whole move to the middle thing, this is just complete horse crap in my mind. I mean, I, I don't... And, and how anybody who wants the Democrats to win could be listening to the Republicans' advice on this blows my mind. And then on top of that, you got, you know, oh, well, what about that socialism word? We're scared to death of that. You know, 1988, George Herbert Walker Bush said of Michael Dukakis, quote, with the American tradition of entrepreneurship and free enterprise at the very moment when other government, you know, he, he said Dukakis broke with the American tradition of entrepreneurship and free enterprise at the very moment when other world governments are abandoning socialism. This, there's a, this great piece on Think Progress today, the 90-year history of Republicans calling Democrats socialists and thus telling Democrats, move to the middle, please. Paul Ryan, quote, Social Security right now is a collectivist system. 
excuse me, Barry Goldwater was actually a, a pretty good friend of Lyndon Johnson. They were two of the most powerful men in the United States Senate. And that, that association kind of transcended their, their political differences. And he wrote a letter, excuse me, he wrote a letter to uh, Lyndon Johnson when, when uh, Jack Kennedy offered him the vice presidency saying, please do not join John Kennedy's socialist presidential ticket. Quote, I still have a numb feeling of despair over your actions of yesterday in accepting the candidacy for vice president. It's difficult to imagine a person like you. This is Goldwater writing to Johnson. Friends, it's difficult to imagine a person like you running in a second spot to a weaker man, but it is even more incredible to try to understand how you are going to try to embrace the socialist platform of your party. That was 1960. 1960. John McCain in 2008. St. John. He says uh, Obama wasn't just a socialist, he was also a liar. At least in Europe, said McCain, the socialist leaders who so admire my opponent are upfront about their objectives. So what, you know, what is this? I mean, what, what are we talking about? Ronald Reagan. This was back in 1967 when, when um, uh, LBJ was pushing through Medicare. And Ronald Reagan did this recording for the American Medical Association. All of us can see what happens once you establish the precedent that the government can determine a man's working place and his working methods, determine his employment. From here, it's a short, well, he starts out, the doctor begins to lose freedoms. You know, first you decide that the doctor can have so many patients. They're equally divided among the various doctors by the government. But then the doctors aren't equal. You know, he goes, and, and once you establish the president that the government can determine a man's working place, his working methods, determine his employment. From here, it's a short, a short step to all the rest of socialism. To determining his pay. And pretty soon your son won't decide when he's in school, where he will go, or what he'll do for a living. He'll wait for the government to tell him where he'll work. One of these days, he said, if you do not stop Medicare, socialist Medicare, this is Ronald Reagan in 1967, if we do not stop socialist Medicare, one of these days you and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in America when men were free. Newt Gingrich, when, when Bill Clinton pre presented Hillary Care, which was, you know, kind of a pretty decent plan. It was sort of a variation on, you know, uh, basically Obamacare. Newt Gingrich takes the floor of the House and says, Bill Clinton's health care plan is socialism, now or later. It's a plan to, quote, seize control of the health care system and centralize power in Washington. During Dwight Eisenhower's administration, See, these are all the examples of Republicans telling Democrats, move to the middle, stay away from that changey stuff, stay away from that socialism, oh my God. President Dwight Eisenhower, Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Oveda Kolb Hobby, denounced the Democratic plan to provide free polio vaccines to children. Now, I remember this. I was, you know, in elementary school in the 1950s when, when uh, Dwight Eisenhower was president. And in school, we lined up and we took the sugar cube, and then later on, we lined up and we took a shot for polio. To, and, and it ended polio. It was free. And she said, this is a backdoor leading to socialized medicine. This was, this was Eisenhower's HEW secretary. In 19, going back before that, 1945, when Harry Truman proposed a single-payer health care system. Yes, President Harry Truman proposed the first national single-payer health care system. 
The American Medical Association said this is, quote, socialized medicine, and Truman's White House staffers are followers of the Moscow party line. They distributed 55 million pamphlets featuring a fabricated quote associated, uh, attributed to Vladimir Lenin saying, quote, socialized medicine is the keystone to the arch of the socialist state or the communist state. Before that, you had the American Liberty League. And now we've got, you know, Mike Pence telling CPAC last weekend, America will never be a socialist country. Mitch McConnell, America needs strong borders, not socialism. What do you think these people are talking about when they say the center? Can somebody please identify this for me? I don't get it. Does it mean that, that we're just supposed to go with Democratic politicians who take a lot of money from big corporations who, who, who are there because of pharma or, or you know high tech or something? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Does centrist in the center mean Democratic politicians who are beholden to special interests? Or, or just ones who are in favor of the status quo? Which is kind of the same thing. My friends at X-Chair are at it again, constantly tinkering to make an already superior product even better so you can work in even more comfort and be that much more productive. Now you can enhance your X-Chair's performance and protect your floors with incredible X-Wheel blade casters. These urethane wheels are driven by butter-smooth, whisper-quiet ball bearings and are built to last. As if the X-Chair isn't comfortable enough, now you can add a set of X-Wheels and take your performance to the next level. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee, you can take your comfort and productivity into the stratosphere by getting yourself an X-Chair. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, xchairtom.com. What do they mean, move to the middle? What the hell is the center that these Republicans are telling Democrats to move to, and some Democrats are telling Democrats to move to? I mean, this, this is the whole sales pitch that Bill Clinton gave us back in 1992 with the DLC and the New Dem Coalition and the New Dem Caucus in Congress and all this stuff. What the hell are they talking about? On the line with us is Brian Pruitt. He's a contributing editor to redstate.com. And people can tweet you at Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, Pruitt, P-R-U-I-T-T, or at Red State. Brian, as a conservative, as a Republican, and I've known you for years, I think of you as a principled conservative and Republican. I have a lot of respect for you. Thank you. I got two questions, and I'll just lay them both out, and you can take them in any order you want, and we can have a conversation about this, um, which may or may not be a debate. I don't know. Number one... When you hear TV pundits and Democrats, and for that matter, Republicans on TV saying, well, Democrats need to move to the center. You know, you can't go too far left. That's going to just kill things. Um, What are they talking about, number one? Number two, why am I not hearing those same people telling Republicans, you guys need to move to the center? I mean, you've got the EPA, hundreds of deregulations so far that, according to several studies, are going to cause 
thousands more cancers. You've got, you know, the selling off of public lands. You've got privatization of everything. You've got, you know, you had George Bush in 2005 literally traveling the country over 30 cities giving speeches saying that it's now, right now, 2005, time to privatize Social Security and hand it all over to the big banks in New York. Why didn't anybody say, well, gee, maybe he should move to the center? What am I missing here, Brian? Well, I think I'll answer the second question first, and that is because Republicans won. That's the answer. The White House and they have the Senate. So that's the quick and easy one. The answer to the first question is that move to the middle is code for, you know, have the ability to win Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, and maybe Ohio. But Bernie Sanders totally kicked Hillary Clinton's butt in those states. He wiped her out in Michigan. He took... Those are primaries you have to actually get. If you want to win, if Democrats want to win the presidency, they have to get back those Barack Obama voters that voted for Trump. That's the middle of the road folks that don't like things like Green New Deal, that don't cotton to ideas like free college tuition. That is code for be able to win the Midwest. Democrats have a lock on California, Oregon, you know, Washington State, Massachusetts, all the way down to maybe New Jersey. But they don't have middle America, the mid-Atlantic, the uh, southern states. And that's what that is code for. I grew up in Michigan. I lived in the Midwest until I was 27 years old. And, you know, most of my family, virtually all of my family still lives there. And I'm in close contact with them. And I think you're reading this wrong, Brian. And I don't think that Barack Obama campaigned as a centrist, and neither did Bill Clinton. I wrote a book about this. It's called Threshold, the Crisis of Western Civilization. Actually, just one chapter in which I reprinted Bill Clinton's stump speech. It was called the New Covenant speech. And his New Covenant speech called for a national health care system, called for a national smart grid. I mean, Bill Clinton campaigned as a progressive and won. And then, as we all famously know now, a couple of weeks before he was sworn into office, Alan Greenspan and Jamie Dimon, and there was one other guy, uh, I'm forgetting who it was, sat him down and said, son, you're going to kill yourself and you're going to kill your party if you govern based on what you just campaigned on. And Bill Clinton turned into a DLC Democrat, turned into, into the middle. But he campaigned as a progressive and won. In all that middle America that you're talking about, Barack Obama campaigned as a progressive. Hope and change. He, you know, the debate was, yes, we're going to have national health care. How do we do it? Exactly how do we do it? That was the debate between him and Hillary. Not should we do it? How do you do it? And change is radical. That was the core message of Barack Obama. The problem is he only had 74 days where he had a veto-proof Senate. And during those 74 days, he got a lot of progressive stuff done. I think that you're mischaracterizing middle America. And I think that Bernie's victories, primary victories in these places that have been absolutely devastated by the Reagan trade policies, you know, the so-called free trade, I think that those would translate into general election victories. I really, truly do. Let me tell you the other reason that Democrats are worried about voting progressive, and that is a lot of Democrats in their desire to win back the Senate are depending on more moderate Republicans getting primary challenges from the right. We're talking about Lindsey Graham. We're talking about Ben Sass. We're talking about Tom Tillis. We're talking about the majority leader himself. We're talking about Cory Gardner out in Colorado. Democrats are depending on an inter-party fight on the right to be able to weaken those candidates and potentially take over the Senate. If Democrats continue to vote ultra-progressive, even if they're show votes in the House that have no chance of 
passing the Senate. What it does is it gives heft to these vulnerable Republicans and probably prevents them from getting a primary challenge, thus letting them shore up their seats. And then you end up with the Senate remaining in Republican hands. So I get all, all that. All the Democrats' grand plans depend on the Senate getting back in Democratic hands. Yeah, well, and let's hope it happens, you know, from my point of view. But again, I think your predicating assumption is that the independent voters, the average voters, and many Democratic voters are, quote, centrist when it comes to policies. Now, this is a two-year-old study. It was conducted by GBA Strategies. It was paid for by the Progressive Change Institute, so they defined the questions. But these are not Democratic or Republican voters. These are all voters, right? People who are actually voters. And 79% think that we should have some sort of a national health care program. Now, again, this is two years ago. I think the, yeah. the, you know, the rates have actually gone up. 78% think that college should be free or close to free. 77% think we should have universal free pre-K. 75% want a trade policy that's going to protect our jobs, which, by the way, is what Trump campaigned on. You know, there were several issues that Trump campaigned on. Number one, he was going to give us a national health care system that was better than Obamacare and cheaper and covered everybody, which is a progressive position. Number two, he said he was going to go back to the kind of trade policies we had before Reaganism, which is a progressive position. Sherrod Brown keeps winning elections and totally kicking ass in Ohio even when Republicans win the governorship and things there on that position. 73% said ending gerrymandering. Medicare for all, 71%. This is, you know, kind of socialized medicine, 71%. End super PACs, 71%. Expand Social Security benefits, 70%. Free public college. All of those non- These are all all voters. All of those policies. You're right. Of course, everybody likes free stuff. Everybody likes free stuff. Right until I'm not talking about free stuff, Brian. Tax rate. I'm talking about yes, fair right. stuff. I'm talking about the stuff that every other, literally, everything that I just listed is right now the way it is in Denmark, in Sweden, in Norway, in Germany, in France, in Spain, in and Italy. Thank God we're in, not them. We in, are, in Canada, we are a country. for God's sake. Every one of those things I just listed is the way it is in Canada. Why would you say, thank God we're not them? Thank God we're not them. We are a unique country. We always well, we're stupid. Been. We don't want to be. We don't want to be like. We want to be owned now. by the oligarchs and the billionaires. Oh come on now! You know I don't believe that. And what? Then what, what is it that? What is it that's unique about Americans that even though eighty percent of Americans want these things, as as Tim Wu pointed out in the New York Times, he says seventy five percent of Americans favor higher taxes to the ultra wealthy. Paid maternity leave sixty seven percent. Can't 80- pay for any of those things. Ultra high taxes on the wealthy cannot pay for any of those things that you want. It requires higher taxes on low and middle income Americans. You know, I would be glad to pay, I'm paying about 400 bucks a month right now for health insurance. I would be glad to pay that in taxes instead of paying it to a for-profit insurance company. That's That's just for my Medicare copay thing. That's not what all Americans want. And that's great. I think it is. If progressives want to pay extra to do something that is not imposed on the American people, so be it. But you're talking about policies that are going to be imposed on the American people by their government. That's very different. Well, right now I'm having policies imposed on me that allow the Koch brothers to poison the air more aggressively, that cause me to have to give more money to United Healthcare. They're not my provider, but, you know, other people for insurance policies so that Stephen J. Hemsley can take home another billion dollars. All those policy prescriptions are popular right until people find out how much they cost. 
That's the part of that. All those all of these things are going to save us money, Brian. Free college produces a return on investment of seven to one, a 700 percent return on investment for really rich white kids. No, for everybody. No, free college. My dad was not really rich. He was the son of immigrants. He went to college. Louise's dad was the first person in her family to go to college. And he ended up the assistant AG of Michigan because of the GI Bill. The GI Bill is different. You're talking about free college tuition with zero requirements. It's a massive, massive giveaway to the rest. Okay, we're wandering off topic, but uh, anyhow, Brian, and we're also out of time. Brian Pruitt, contributor at redstate.com, and uh, you can tweet him at Brian Pruitt, B-R-Y-A-N Pruitt. Thanks, Brian. Tom, thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It is nice talking with a conservative who actually is a thoughtful person and wants to have a serious conversation about the issues. I really appreciate that. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind? Hello, Tom. It's time for a little history lesson about socialism. So the word socialist, it had a meaning prior to Marx, but eventually when Karl Marx came into the scene, the word effectively meant a transitional phase between capitalism and worldwide communism, the withering away of the state and the uh, gradual adoption of communism. However, there was a split in the socialist movement. It was around the early 20th century, and there was two groups of socialists. There was one faction, the Social Democrats, who basically wanted to have a... um, more moderate position and to be elected in the government. So the this would be like Eugene Debs you're talking about? Yeah, a German Social Democrat Party is a good example of this. They had Marxism in their platform until the 1950s, I believe. Mm. And Karl Marx was a part of the organizing of that because he believed that the revolution would come originally in Germany. And there was a revolution in Germany. However, this is the key point, the Social Democratic Party went into a right-wing deviation from the revolutionary socialist part of the socialist movement, which was people like Lenin. Right, that's in Europe, right? You're talking Germany and Europe. I mean, let's stick to America here. Well, I mean... Or are you saying that the word has been redefined internationally? I mean, like, what do you mean? I mean, the word hasn't been redefined. That's the point I'm getting at. But the word social democrat did get redefined. I mean, that is effectively what Bernie Sanders is. He is a social democrat. He believes in what the new definition of what it is, is welfare capitalism. Mm -hmm. And my problem is that with welfare capitalism, it doesn't change the power system of the capitalist state. So where is, why is it that we have billionaires to begin with? Why is it that we haven't nationalized all of the industries like oil or agro-farming? If you want to get rid of climate change, you can't have private industry anymore. But imperialism... You just don't have toxic private industry. I mean, you're talking, what you're talking about, I call this regulated capitalism, and I'm a big advocate of it. Well, we've tried regulated capitalism, Tom. Eventually, the capitalists will just they'll kind of let it go for a while and then they'll just unravel it i mean we're seeing that in europe we're seeing that so in what's America. your alternative Jared? And, uh full worldwide communism i think that capitalism is done i think it's wait a minute you want you want to- a worldwide version of what modern china uh, no 20th no. century russia or soviet union no no what no i want give me an example 
One country I, that has done it successfully. Well, I mean, the USSR prior to the 1980s was... Had a Stalin was running a reign of terror, Jared. What? Well, well, I wouldn't necessarily say that everything he did was bad, let's just say. Okay, well, I, I get it, but I... Okay, Jared, thank you for the call. Interesting, interesting. Dan in Fremont, Indiana. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind? Hello. Hey. This is uh, right, now, right in my wheelhouse today. I'm messaging with uh, my centrist Democratic friends about the very topic for days and days. More than a few are Michigan State grads, I might add. Have, have any of them articulated in a clear and understandable fashion what, quote, centrism means on the Democratic side? No. <laughs> they buy into the DLC line still it's just i don't get it they how can bernie get through to these guys i mean it's one of the problems is that the media is spoon feeding this meme i mean they are oh, yeah. they are shoveling this stuff out like like back in the day when i used to shovel out horse stalls i mean you know they're just shoveling oh, well, this stuff all, right at us they're all msnbc viewers i mean and you know what we're getting from them <laughs> yeah i see it on cnn as well and you know and i'm guessing it's all over the media it's you know it's certainly on the sunday shows you know this is the thing oh you know how badly damaged will the democratic party be if they put you know a george mcgovern in there you know george mcgovern lost every state <laughs> but one right um this has become conventional wisdom for the chattering class mm -hmm. and i don't think that this is 1972. it isn't who's going to take us forward you know, I think the vehicle's a Democratic Party. Oh, it has to Just be. A, it has to be. Oh, we, can, we can't go third party. That's suicide. And it has to be solid, coherent, and well-supported. And it's getting better supported. You know, the demographics are changing. And, and they'll all come around. They'll all vote for But Bernie. then what do we do about, you know, I got, I don't have it here in front of me, but I got this uh, email from Donald Trump saying that the Democrats are campaigning on a platform of, quote, fully open borders. Here it is, right here. 90% uh, taxes, wide open borders, full term abortion, government run health care, full blown socialism. I mean, this went out to like 30, 40 million people this email this morning. Enables that crap. Yeah. I think our media is enabling that crap, frankly. Oh, yeah. The whole, yeah. There you go. Dan, thanks a lot for the call. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Our book today is Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny by Edward J. Watts. This is from the first chapter, which I think is really more like an introduction. 
This book explains why Rome, still one of the longest lived republics in world history, traded the liberty of political autonomy for the security of autocracy. It's written at a moment when modern readers need to be particularly aware of both the nature of the republics and the consequences of their failure. We live in a time of political crisis when the structures of republics as diverse as the United States, Venezuela, France, and Turkey are threatened. Many of these republics are the constitutional descendants of Rome, and as such, they have inherited both the tremendous structural strengths that allowed the Roman Republic to thrive for so long, and some of the same structural weaknesses that led eventually to its demise. This is particularly true of the United States, a nation whose basic constitutional structure was deliberately patterned on the idealized view of the Roman Republic presented by the 2nd century B.C. author Polybius. This conscious borrowing from Rome's model makes it vital for all of us to understand how Rome's Republic worked, what it achieved, and why, after nearly five centuries, its citizens ultimately turned away from it and toward the autocracy of Augustus. No republic is eternal. It lives only as long as its citizens want it. And in both the 21st century AD and the 1st century BC, when a republic fails to work as intended, its citizens are capable of choosing the stability of autocratic rule over the chaos of a broken republic. When freedom leads to disorder and autocracy promises a functional and responsive government, even citizens of an established republic can become willing to set aside long-standing principled objections to the rule of one man and embrace its practical benefits. Rome offers a lesson about how citizens and leaders of a republic might avoid forcing their fellow citizens to make such a tortured choice. Rome shows that the basic, most important function of a republic is to create a political space that is governed by laws, fosters compromise, shares government responsibility among a group of representatives, and rewards good stewardship. Politics in such a republic should not be a zero-sum game. The politician who wins a political struggle may be honored, but one who loses should not be punished. The Roman Republic did not encourage its leaders to seek complete and total political victory. It was not designed to force one side to accept everything the other wanted. Instead, it offered tools that, like the American filibuster, served to keep the process of political negotiation going until a mutually agreeable compromise was found. This process worked very well in Rome for centuries, but it worked only because most Roman politicians accepted the laws and norms of the Roman Republic. They committed to working out their disputes in the political arena that the Republic established rather than through violence in the streets. Republican Rome succeeded in this more than perhaps any other state before or since. If the early and middle centuries of Rome's Republic show how effective this system can be, the last century of the Roman Republic reveals the tremendous dangers that result when political leaders cynically misuse these consensus-building mechanisms to obstruct a republic's functions. Like politicians in modern republics, Romans could use vetoes to block votes on laws. They could claim the presence of unfavorable religious conditions to annul votes they disliked. And they could deploy other parliamentary tools to slow down or shut down the political process if it seemed to be moving too quickly toward an outcome that they disliked. When used as intended, these tools help promote negotiations and political compromises by preventing majorities from imposing solutions on minorities. But in Rome, as in our world, politicians could also employ such devices to prevent the Republic from doing what its citizens needed. The widespread misuse of these tools offered the first signs of sickness in Rome's Republic. 
Much more serious threats to republics appear when arguments between politicians spill out from the controlled environments of representative assemblies and degenerate into violent confrontations between ordinary people in the streets. Romans had avoided political violence for three centuries before a series of political murders rocked the Republic in the 130s and 120s BC. Once mob violence infected Roman politics, however, the institutions of the Republic quickly lost their ability to control the contexts and content of political disputes. Within a generation of the first political assassination in Rome, politicians had begun to arm their supporters and use the threat of violence to influence the votes of assemblies and the elections of magistrates. Within two generations, Rome fell into civil war, and two generations later, Augustus ruled as Roman emperor. When the Republic lost the ability to regulate the rewards given to political victors and the punishments inflicted on the losers of political conflicts, Roman politics became a zero-sum game in which the winner reaped massive rewards and the losers often paid with their lives. Above all else, the Roman Republic teaches the citizens of its modern descendants the incredible dangers that come along with condoning political obstruction and courting political violence. Roman history could not more clearly show that when citizens look away as their leaders engage in these corrosive behaviors, the Republic is in mortal danger. Unpunished political dysfunction prevents consensus and encourages violence. In Rome, it eventually led Romans to trade the Republic for the security of an autocracy. This is how a Republic dies, mortal Republic. Tom Harvin here with you. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, kind of the head progressive guy or one of the two, along with Pramila Jayapal in the House of Representatives and represents the great state of Wisconsin. His website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at rep Mark Pocan, P-O-C-A. And Congressman, welcome back. Oh, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Congressman Pocan is with us, taking your calls on whatever topic you want to discuss. H.R. 1, House Resolution 1, this is the literally the first piece of legislation the Democrats have put. I heard a rumor this morning that literally 100 percent of all the Democrats in the House of Representatives are on board with this piece of legislation. If that's true, this has got to be a mind-bogglingly extraordinary piece of legislation. Is it true, and can you tell us what this is? Yes, it is. There's a few stories that Democrats are in disarray over this issue or that issue. This is the first bill we've introduced. It's an election, campaign finance, and ethics reform bill with serious reforms in the bill, things that we've talked about on this program for years, Tom, and every single Democrat is signed on the co-author of the bill, which is extraordinary. So, one, to me, that's extraordinary unity among the Democrat caucus. Two, contrast this last session. What was H.R. 1 under Paul Ryan? His tax cut for the wealthiest in this country, and it took him almost a full first year to get that done. This is a real contrast in what it means to have Democrats and Republicans. This is a bill that does all sorts of things to make sure that people will be able to vote. It's rid of the purging of names, the interstate cross-check, make sure we have paper ballots on electronic machines, uh, unmasked dark money, goes after a bunch of the ethics abuses of this administration. It is a serious, significant bill. I've got a couple amendments I'm still adding this afternoon. We're getting tax returns in this. I mean, there's so much. And I think this is a good sign of what happened in November when people came out and we flipped the majority. We know that it's due to all the scandals and ethics problems here in Washington, D.C., and we're addressing it. So why would it be 
that a piece of legislation that advances clean government, essentially, that simply advances clean government would be partisan. I mean, why is that something that Democrats would all sign on to and Republicans would all oppose? Or am I wrong in assuming that all the Republicans oppose this? Well, I mean, I think in real people, this would be like people would say, why would you oppose most of the stuff that's in here, right? It's, it's common sense, good government issues. Republicans have an amendment to say we support Citizens United uh, as a standing. So they're doing it from a very partisan perspective. They're doing it to protect the special interests and lobbyists in Washington. They're doing it. Wait a second. You, you said the Republicans have an amendment to say that they support what? Citizens United. Citizens United? Oh, geez. Okay. Yeah. I, no, I mean, it's just goofy, and we'll be voting on that, and it's not going to pass because we're in charge. But sure. this is the, to show you where they come at from this issue. So they love dark money, which makes sense. I mean, they're principally, the Republican Party seems to be there just to do whatever the billionaires and the, and the big corporations tell them to do. In fact, my understanding, I mean, you were the, one of the guys who really informed us on this back when you were in the legislature in Wisconsin, and you went to that ALEC meeting, and you yeah. called our show from that ALEC meeting, and literally, big corporations lobbyists seem to be writing perhaps the majority of the legislation that Republicans are introducing at both at the state and federal level all across the country. Yeah, I mean, there it was brazen, right? Every committee was made up of half legislators and half industry people, and you needed a majority vote of both. I mean, you actually had the corporations writing that you were writing legislation for voting on their legislation. That's how ridiculous that was. But here... It's a bit more discreet, except for all the incredible amounts of big money that come into people's campaigns and the influence it has here. And a bill like this is really outstanding. I mean, John Sarbanes uh, has been an advocate for years and years and years on this. I, I really give him a lot of credit for shepherding this, but I give credit to Leader Pelosi as well, because this became H.R. 1. And the Progressive Caucus made this a priority, and a lot of members of all different political stripes have stood up for it. And this is... Uh, again, when you look at certain stories saying there's disunity among Democrats, the reason those stories are out there is because 100% of our caucus is on H.R. 1, and we're passing it two months after we get sworn in. Amazing. Okay, Nettie in Sh How do you pronounce that town in Wisconsin? Shyocton. Shyocton. Great. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Congressman, I want to congratulate you and Pramila Jayapal from the Congressional Progressive Caucus for having a forum yesterday with Andrew Bacevich. We need to rethink our role in the Middle East, and that's a great step forward. Thank you. Oh, thank you. We had a, a forum uh, yesterday, Tom, with uh, people like Katrina Van Nuvel and a bunch of other folks who have been outspoken progressive thinkers in the foreign policy realm. We are beefing up what we do. We actually have a full-time fellow for our caucus just working on this. All the work around Yemen has come out of the Progressive Caucus. Now we're trying to do some work around Venezuela because there's some countervailing forces that could dip us into a military intervention. We don't want to see that. So we're really proud. As a caucus, we've been doing a lot of work in this effort. And, Nettie, thanks so much for recognizing it. Cool. Kathy in Santa Fe, New Mexico, listening on KTRC. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman. Hi, Tom. I'd like to know what you guys are working on in order to protect our vote a little bit better this time. Um, I have friends who believe that their vote doesn't count and was proven last time. So I'd like to know what's being done about that, and thank you. Yeah, Kathy, so uh, again, H.R. 1, this is a classic example. The bill that we're going to pass tomorrow on the floor, today we're finishing amendments, automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration prohibiting voter roll purges, paper ballots with electronic voting machines, expanding early voting and voting by mail, 
providing funding so that people can actually do this, ending partisan gerrymandering, assisting the Election Assistance Commission, and additional election security uh, measures. That's just the election portion of this, not counting the campaign finance or ethics portion. So there's a lot we're putting out there. Uh, we're going to break this into little bills, too, and send those to the Senate. But this is probably clearly by being H.R. 1, it is the biggest priority of the Democrats. Uh, this is the reason why uh, we were put in the majority in November, and uh, we're going to fight for these issues very hard. And this isn't like some totally radical thing that's going to outlaw ALEC or anything like that, is it? No, no, no. I mean, this is just, it's really on, on the election stuff. It's what I just mentioned, I mean, but things that are all great practices. Wisconsin, just straightforward stuff that has been law in the past and in many cases. Yeah, yeah I mean, these are all things that are best practices from around the country. And if we can implement this, it makes sure that everyone has the ability to be able to vote. Extraordinary. H.R. 1. I would assume, if particularly somebody's represented by a Republican, to be sure to call Congress at 202-224-3121 and tell them to go with H.R. 1, Congressman? Absolutely. Much appreciated. Yeah, there you go. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Congressman Pocan, along with Pramila Jayapal, are the two co-chairs of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Lowell in Salem, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I have a question about why progressives are using means testing in some of their policy proposals. For example, Elizabeth Warren's child care proposal only helps people up to 200% of the federal poverty level. And the federal poverty level is so low that you can't afford to live. And 200%, you're still desperate. 80% of the workforce lives paycheck to paycheck. So assistance needs to be universal and the rich people can decide not to use it. I can't speak for Elizabeth Warren, so uh, sorry I can't answer that. I can tell you that you know we have universal child care as a provision for the Progressive Caucus. That's a priority. We have a number of provisions that don't go means-tested, some that do, because in some cases it makes sense. A lot of us, Social Security, would like to lift the cap, raise what we take in from people who make more than, I think it's 126000 now, so we address it that way. But I, I, again, I can't speak for Elizabeth Warren's proposal, but I can tell you a little, you know, many of the proposals we put out there, we're trying to be far more universal. Universal child care is an aspect that we've put out there as a progressive doctor. Samuel, listening on KPFK in Santa Ana, California. Samuel, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I am a person who is part of a class action lawsuit. There were 12 of us, and we did a million-dollar lawsuit. I thought it was many more people. We got paid 18000 and the lawyers got paid $982,000. I did not know that this was even legal. I've done a little bit of research. It turns out that there are other cases like this. There should be something saying that this is impossible. And I'm thinking it should be bipartisan. Republicans always have the smoke screen about tort reform. So I was thinking maybe you could um, um, get some legislation on that. This is literally, it's, it's like legal theft. Yes, I mean, I, I don't know at all any of the details of, of your case, but I mean, it does seem uh, terribly astute. I, I completely agree on that front. You're listening to Tom Hartman. What most people don't realize about working in radio is that it's hungry work. I mean it. And you know cooking can seem like a chore. But that's where HelloFresh comes in. They take the guesswork out of cooking by offering a wide-ranging menu with classics that we know and love like the gorgeous greens farro bowl or the delicious grilled sriracha glazed salmon to recipes you might not be as familiar with courtesy of their gourmet menu. 
Get fresh and affordable, high-quality ingredients delivered right to your doorstep, pre-measured. So all you have to do is follow the recipe. It could not be easier. That's what makes HelloFresh America's number one meal kit. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes. Visit HelloFresh.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's HelloFresh.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. Get a total of $60 off. That's $20 off your first three boxes. Visit HelloFresh.com slash Tom. That's HelloFresh.com slash T-H-O-M. HelloFresh.com slash Tom. Jeff in Portland, Oregon, listening on X-Ray FM. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, good morning, Tom and Congressman Pocan. Thanks for, thank you both for doing what you do and for taking my call. My question for the congressman concerns the Green New Deal, and may I just suggest we subtitle it the plan to make our infrastructure great and green, since uh, infrastructure along with health care and, and many other things were big lies Trump told on the campaign trail. But anyway, you guys are both from the Great Lakes, and Tom, you had a woman from Toledo talking about their efforts to protect Lake Erie from the toxic algae blooms, which are more and more prevalent all the way down to the Gulf Coast of Florida. And they're mostly caused from big agriculture and the runoff from chemical fertilizers. And along with poisoning our water with those chemicals, big ag is also saturating our food chain with carcinogenic pesticides. And I refer you guys to a piece in The Guardian from February 15th titled, What the Pesticides in Our Urine Tell Us About Organic Food. And so my question to you, Congressman Pocan, is can you introduce the idea of radically transforming how we grow our food free from chemicals and pesticides and try and put that as part of the Green New Deal? You raise a great point, but there are so many aspects of things that could be directly related to the New Green Deal, right? Um, and, and definitely our food supply and those issues and water quality are very clearly uh, front and center. Um, you know, I know that Earl Blumenauer uh, has got an extensive piece about our food supply. Kelly Pingree from Maine also has been articulate around the organic food supply. So uh, there are some people talking about those issues, uh, but I have not seen a direct connection yet to the New Green Deal, and I think it's a great suggestion. So uh, let me see what I can do as we move uh, things forward with that. Is that why Rush Limbaugh is saying, that, or whoever it is, is saying that the Green New Deal wants to ban our hamburgers because it's going to regulate intensive a animal agriculture? I never try to guess why they say any of the lies they say. Yeah. So I'm not sure, yeah. but that was part of the conservative conference they brought the hamburgers. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I've heard, you know, I guess it was Sebastian Gorka, but I've heard it from a couple of different sources, and I thought, well, you know, <laughs> that's fine with I'm, me. I'm, but <laughs> I was highly credible to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll be right back with Congressman Mark Pocan taking your call. Stick around. Maverick in Edmonds, Washington, listening on KBCS. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Well, good morning to both of you, and thank you for taking my call, Tom. I've been listening for about three years now, and I want to thank you. I feel like I'm more informed and even maybe more important, I feel some optimism that I didn't have before I started listening to you. Well, thank you. So, Congressman, I'm curious about the mechanics of calling up Congress. Why should I do it? Should I do it more than once? What happens? Am I going to leave a voicemail? If you could walk me through that process, that would be great. And once again, don't give up on the Trump investigation and go Packers if the Seahawks don't win. <laughs> wow, you're hitting everything right. Um, so, Maverick, thank you. Say this. 
let me talk about the, the way I talk about the hierarchy of reaching out. I mean, first of all, you should always, if you have an opinion, contact your lawmakers, uh, local, state, and federal, because we all keep lists of how many contacts we have. And if you think someone's voting with you, it's still important to have that count. And weekly, as a member of Congress, I see every contact that we've got by count on the issue, pro and con. So it really is important. Best way to contact the elected officials face-to-face, because you can have a real conversation. Second best is through a personal letter or call telling your personal story. Email is the same thing as a personal letter these days, so that, in fact, it gets to us quicker. Something is timely. The lower effective ways are those mass postcards and things that, you know, I know the effort that went into it. We, we kind of give it that kind of a look. But I can get two or three contacts on an issue to put something on a radar screen. So it really is important that you reach out to your elected officials, and even better, at a town hall or setting up a meeting, that face-to-face contact uh, is without question the single best way. But do it, and we keep track of the numbers, and it does affect the legislation we introduce and how we vote. I'd always figured if you were going to call your legislator, and I put that number out, 202-225-3121 or 224-3121 often, that you should be polite regardless of which party you're talking to, and you should only talk about a single topic, and you should get right to the point. It should be boiled down to less than a sentence, less than two or three sentences at the most, so that the person taking the call, who's not going to want to debate you or anything else, can simply summarize it and pass it along. Is is that reasonable advice, or is there anything you'd add to that? No, and, and the only thing, just realize, it is probably an intern that's answering the phone. Right. So when they don't, sometimes people do want to debate, they may not be the most informed, but they're taking down all the information, and I will get all that information, but if you start a debate, you might lose what you initially called for. So I think you, what you said is great advice. Yeah, okay, great. Tony in Watsonville, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, I have a question about national security. My concern is if the Trump family gets incarcerated or gets caught with what they're doing, if they'll still get protected for life, because if they're jet-setting around the world and they're instigating all this hate and and right-wing fear, that we're going to actually have be in trouble with these people across the world. You mean the Secret Service protection that we pay for? Yes. Yeah, okay. Thank Thank you, Tony. My guess, Tony, this is a guess, is the president gets it no matter what. I don't think the rest of the family gets it forever. But I, I don't have a great answer because I don't know the, exactly on that, but I would assume the president would have the coverage regardless. Terry in St. Paul, Minnesota, listening on AM 950, uh, which is where I was last weekend. It was just great. Terry, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Oh, hi, Tom. Hi, Mark. A great show, a long listener. Mark, I had a chance to meet you this fall in Hastings, Minnesota, at an Angie Craig meeting. And I brought up the issue about H.R. 303, Military Retiree Restoration Act. And what that does is restores full pay for the retirees that have service-connected disabilities. Currently, how it is set up, um, if you have 50% or less of a service-connected disability, um, you still get a monthly check from the VA, but that dollar amount is subtracted from my retirement, my military retirement pay. Yep, 50% yeah, or more, then it's not. Yeah, I'm sorry, Terry. I just had someone from the Disabled Veterans of America come in and talk to us about this. So I know we're looking at it right now for this session. Um, but, yeah, we just had someone come through our office on this. So I, I do remember the issue. Great. Uh, Nancy in Elkhart, Indiana, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. 
I have one question and one comment. I get very confused about when you're introducing the HR1 because we get so much information sent to us from our local congressman. And can you t- explain to me what the local congressman is and how you can send something to us uh, telling us that you are sending us uh, the, the national HR1. Find some trusted places that you get news, like from Tom, and that's the best way to get information around HR1. If the confusion is around, there are state legislative proposals that might have similar numbers. If it's a HR house resolution, I'm not sure how they do it in Indiana, but... Uh, I think maybe she's also arguing it should have a fancy name. Oh, yeah, than- it's For the People Act. That's for the People Act. Okay, great. Great. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us today. Of course, Tom. Thank you, as always. He's one of the great guys in the U.S. House of Representatives. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you and Mark in San Diego. Hey, Mark, thanks for listening to us on TuneIn. What's up? You got it, Tom. Listen, answer a question for me. How come nobody ever tells the Republicans to move to the center? Yeah. You know, it, it's it's okay to, for them to run extremist candidates like uh, Ronald Reagan back in the day and Donald Trump, but nobody ever tells them, oh, you know, those candidates are too extreme. They're not going to win. Well, and George you know, W. Bush, I, in 2005, after he won re-election, he said, I have earned political capital and I'm now going to go out and spend it. And he gave over 30 speeches around the country about how important it was to turn Social Security over to the big banks and completely privatize it. And, and nobody well, called him an extremist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, nobody ever tells that Republicans, hey, you know, you're, that candidate, Donald Trump, he can't win. You've got to get somebody more centrist. You know what? If Donald Trump has done anything at all, he has proven that anybody, anybody can be elected president. Don't tell me that Bernie Sanders can't be elected president when Donald Trump was elected. Don't tell me that Elizabeth Warren can't be elected when Donald Trump was elected. And Donald Trump has proven that it doesn't make any difference. Anybody who comes out and speaks his mind, I mean, you know, Trump has got a, a crazy mind, but at least he comes out and, and, and forcefully uh, stands for what he stands for. Yeah. People respond to that. I, I call that the Harry Truman effect. He, uh, Harry Truman said, faced with uh, 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 a real Republican against a fake Republican, the people will vote for a, a real Republican every time. Yeah. And, and that's what's going to happen. But nobody, well, answer that question for me. How come nobody ever tells the Republicans to move to the center? I uh, I think it's because most uh, most of the people in the media are Republicans and, and embrace the Republican perspective, and Democrats for some reason are are reluctant to demonize and finger wag and stuff like that. Democrats are perfectly happy to call Trump corrupt or a crook or a mob boss or something, but to call his policies radical, they're they're afraid to do it. How, how much more radical can you get than his policies, for God's sakes? Yeah. I mean, it, it's you know what you know what the Democrats need. They need a Harry Truman. They need somebody to come out there and tell it like it is. People respond to that. People do not like candidates who put their finger in the air and see which way the wind is blowing. Yeah. I mean, for, for all Donald Trump's faults. At least he comes out there and people respond to his no holes bar attitude. You got it. You can't have somebody that's wishy washy. The Democrats. No, you can't. Somebody in out. fact, and I, and I think Bernie Sanders is that guy. Well, I, you know, and I, I think that there are several of them, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not endorsing at this point, but I, but I'm, you know, we've got some great people. But here's an example 
of when Democratic politicians actually had passion. This is Ted Kennedy on the floor of the United States Senate when they were debating the minimum wage. $240 billion in tax breaks for corporations, $36 billion in tax breaks for small businesses, increase in productivity, 42% over the last 10 years. But do you think there's any increase in the minimum wage? No. What is the price? We ask the other side. What is the price that you want from these working men and women? What cost? How much more do we have to give to the private sector and the business? How many billion dollars more are you asking? Are you requiring? When does the greed stop? And apparently the answer is the greed never stops. It was $1.5 trillion a year before last. Mark, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Spot on. Eric in Weston, West Virginia. Hey, Eric, what's up? Thanks for watching us on YouTube, Eric. What's on your mind? Well, I'm 65, and I remember what this country used to be. And it seems to me, slowly but extorably, the powers that be, the oligarchy, had just taken over step by step. I won't go so far to call it American fascism, but that's basically what I see what American capitalism has become. It's nothing wrong with making a profit, but they are literally bleeding the middle class and the poor to death. And it's just getting harder and harder to get along. Yeah. I've seen studies suggesting that since Reagan dropped the top tax rate, to today, more or less. I've seen two or three different studies that everybody's trying to figure this out. How much money has been transferred out of the pockets of the middle class and working people and into the pockets of the top 0.01%, the top one-tenth of 1%. And it looks, I've seen numbers as low as $12 trillion and as high as $30 trillion. You know, it's somewhere in there and that's what's going on. You know, Eisenhower, he was a Republican. He wasn't no socialist Democrat. And I believe the top-tier tax rate when Eisenhower was president was 90%. 91%. You're absolutely right. Throughout his entire and, presidency. And he never complained about it. In fact, he thought it was a good thing. And he wrote to his brother Edgar when his brother Edgar was talking about you're being like a socialist and said, no, no, not going to happen. And Eisenhower campaigned for election in 52. And for his re-election campaign was really the big one in 56, where he pointed to what he had done in the previous four years. He'd added more than two million people to the union rolls. He had expanded Social Security benefits. He had put more than a million people on Social Security and made tens of millions of people, once they retired, eligible for Social Security who previously weren't. He expanded Social Security. And, of course, the hard right, the John Birch Society, referred to Dwight Eisenhower as a socialist or a communist. They more often called him a communist, which was you know more of a swear word back in that day. You're absolutely right, Eric. You're absolutely right. And thanks for watching us there in West Virginia. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right, the people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.